podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world in this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you and your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and personal growth in Christ. Today, I'd like to take a moment and deal with a topic uh, that's been sort of on my heart uh, lately, uh, particularly because it's a phrase that's often been used uh, among uh, Christian circles um, to manipulate people to hold critique back, to disallow uh, dialogue, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, someone's teaching. Uh, There's a lot of superstars out there. Uh, I don't pretend to be one, I don't wanna be one, but uh, there are a lot of superstars out there in the Christian world. And with this comes uh, a lot of of different teaching that is uh, sometimes biblical, sometimes not. And uh, the phrase that's often thrown around um, to uh, stifle critique or to manipulate people into not critiquing particular teachers is a phrase that's, that's found in the Bible. And the phrase is, touch not my anointed ones, or don't do my prophets, do not do my prophets no harm. And so... Um, a pastor's teaching, uh, first of all, ought to hold up to biblical scrutiny, uh, just just as a as a starting point, right? Um, the the notion that a pastor uh, teaches and it ought to be accurate teaching or at least biblically sound teaching um, is is kind of a a no brainer, in my opinion. In my experience, people use biblical text uh, use this biblical test text, do not lift your hand against the Lord's anointed uh, in defense of a teacher or a prophet or a so-called apostle um, whose teaching doesn't stand up under biblical scrutiny. Um, It's usually in a context, usually this phrase is used in a context when a person is questioning a biblical validity of a person's teaching or something of that nature. The defender says something to the effect of, be careful. Uh, you know, don't touch the Lord's anointed or don't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. Uh, this biblical quote is taken way, first of all, <laughs> it's taken way out of context. Um, the context is where David was asked by one of his generals, general, his general's name was Abishai, to let him kill Saul, uh, the king who was rightly anointed by God and in power at the time. Uh, This passage of scripture is not at all applicable where most people use it. Um, I've recently, and the reason I bring this up in this podcast is because I've recently heard it a lot. I've heard it used uh, in Facebook land. I've heard it used uh, by leaders in uh, church ministry recently. I've heard it a lot. I've heard it by self-proclaimed apostles, prophets. Uh, Benny Hinn uh, is one of the names. I'll throw that name out there. He uses this phrase a lot. Um, and it's been, uh, it's come around, uh, back around again recently. Um, yeah, so uh, first in a church leadership where a staff uh, was defending this group, this group of elders, um, that's the most recent uh, uh, place I've heard it in. Um, and there were, people were just questioning the, the theological direction of a church and its aberrant direction, frankly. And uh, a, a staff person used this phrase uh, to defend um, the elders who were going in an aberrant theological direction. So um, I've, I've seen it three times this last month on Facebook where uh, one person was threatening uh, the one questioning the theology with eternal condemnation actually. Uh, it was pretty, pretty hefty. I thought, man, um, this poor young guy, honestly, was uh, was just trying to ask a question um, and wanted help. Actually, he was asking a question about a teacher's teaching and uh, wanted help on what 
what this teacher actually taught. And the person said, be careful not to touch the Lord's anointed. Um, you could be coming under condemnation for doing that. This guy was being real civil, real cordial. It wasn't anything uh, untoward or anything like that. He was, he was being kind and actually wanted real help. So uh, there are several texts. Let's kind of dig into this now. There are several texts where this phrase uh, or a semblance of this phrase appears. Uh, one of those texts is most often quoted is found in 1 Samuel chapter 26, uh, verses 7 to 11. The text reads uh, this. Uh, so I'll, I'll bring my Bible out at some point, but I've got this here in my notes. So sorry if I'm looking like I'm reading a little bit. I, I am reading a little bit because I made some notes here about what this uh, this passage is, uh, what this phrase is about. It's a really interesting study. Hope you've maybe studied on your own as well, but we're just going to dig into it. So in 1 Samuel 26, 7 through 11, the text reads, So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping with his encampment, uh, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand to this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for you can. who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is in at his head and the jar of water and let's go. And he wanted to take that uh, as evidence that he had the opportunity to kill him, uh, but spared his life. So he shows Saul later, hey, uh, I had the chance to kill you, but I didn't. Why are you still trying to kill me? Um, so what most people are doing uh, when they question biblical, the biblical nature of some teacher's teaching is a far cry from what's happening here. Um, David's general wants to pin uh, Saul's head to the ground with a one stroke of a spear. Um, and that's not what, what's going on. Those phrases and sayings are plucked out of context and are how these teachers keep their adherents from questioning them. This is a biblical and exegetical abuse and manipulation. And I'll show you in this show how it's uh, exegetically terribly mishandled. So what does this phrase mean where, where David uses this here? He says, put out uh, and not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed or put, or put place my hand against the Lord's anointed. Uh, this is an idea that was common in Israel at the time. So let's have a look at some of the Old Testament uh, sections and what it means. Um, and another text uh, where we see, and I can, now I can break out my good old trusty um, real Bible. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16, we see uh, the instance that David uses. And so interestingly enough, David is the only one who sort of quotes this idea um, don't touch the Lord's anointed or do not put your hand against the Lord's anointed and, and kind of quotes it and uses it in several different places, especially in relation to Saul and Saul trying to kill him and his generals always wanting to kind of come back and uh, try to kill Saul. So here it is in a, in a long Psalm of Thanksgiving or a Psalm. It's not a Psalm. It's in first Chronicles 16, but it's a long passage and it's where uh, the Israelites are bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And David um, uses this phrase in this big, long psalm of thanksgiving. So let's uh, let's jump in. I'm going to jump in at verse 19. It's a very long psalm. And it's actually almost word for word, funny enough, uh, for our next psalm, which is in Psalm 103, uh, 105, excuse me. And uh, so First uh, Chronicles 16 is almost a word for word copy of Psalm 105, which was probably some kind of well-known Psalm of Thanksgiving. Either David had written it in Psalm 105 and it's just being copied here in First Chronicles, or it was a well-known Psalm. Probably the likelihood that David wrote it previously, it was a, a well-known Psalm then because of his writing it. And here he just sort of repeats it at the ceremony of them bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. So let's read here real quick, uh, Psalm 19, just to give a little bit of context. Context is king, remember, when understanding the Bible, 
an understanding interpretation of the Bible and exegesis, context is king. So he says here, uh, when you were few in number of little account uh, and sojourners in it, talking about Israel, wandering from nation to nation, from one king to, the, to another, people, uh, one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. Talking about Israel again, God was faithful, didn't let people be oppressed. Um, and he rebuked kings on their account, saying to those kings who would try to harm God's anointed one, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And then he says in verse 23 here, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared among all gods. So most likely, David's the writer of that Psalm 105, like I said, and it's a almost a direct copy. It's really wild um, and, and probably just here used for this uh, ex extremely uh, uh, awesome occasion. But here, um, David is setting a precedent and saying what happened in history and the Isra history of Israel, God protected Israel. And so this, this, um, this principle that David repeats here is a principle of protection. Um, yeah, just as a side note, um, reviewing the redemptive history of God or our own testimony is a very, very helpful practice. Write your story down. Look back. We, we keep, a, as a family, we keep a book of God's faithfulness and love. And we just, if something new happens, we just write it in there and just say, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your kindness and goodness. So this is a really a, a good practice to be a part of, to, to just go back like David does and look at the history of God's redemptive movement. Um, and uh, this principle of the protection of God is remembered by David. God had set up a principle of his protection for Israel, his chosen and loved people. It was also a, princi a principle that men should not mess with, don't touch, uh, or kill his prophets, priests, or kings. As prophets, priests, and kings were especially anointed with oil, a symbol of initiation, setting something apart, consecration, or sanctifying something for a special work. So uh, the kings, prophets, priests, and kings would be initiated into their role by being anointed as king or as prophet. Aaron, for instance, and his sons were anointed into the Levitical line uh, through uh, anointing. They were anointed as prophets and uh, that's described in Exodus, Exodus 30, verse 31. And uh, it says there, this will be my sacred anointing for generations to come. This precious oil is interesting. They use a specific oil could not be used to anoint anyone in the in the community, in the greater Israelite community, uh, just for regular anointing or oil for, for other purposes. It could only be used, a special oil concoction could only be used um, for this purpose, for anointing the leaders of Israel. Um, very interesting. Um, and uh, this word, uh, Mashiach, uh, is Messiah, or transliterated as Messiah, or is uh, means anointed one. So it's not just a word reserved solely for Messiah or for Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's... it's uh, used and applied to 30, several different people. 39 times it appears in the Old Testament, and it primarily refers to priests, prophets, and kings. Although prophets were not always anointed in public ceremonies, it's interesting, uh, with this oil, they were called his anointed ones. And these two passages, God is saying through the authors, do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. In Psalm 105, it appears the same, almost the same thing as in First Chronicles 16, what we just read. This refers to the prophets of God who were often maltreated, killed, and persecuted. 
Uh, this may also be the reason uh, for their lack of being publicly affirmed. So a lot of prophets in, in the Old Testament were not really publicly affirmed because when when God raised up a prophet, there was often a void of godly, righteous leadership to be anointed to, to anoint them. He was calling up a prophet to call those kings and other people um, and evil people in leadership of Israel to uh, accounts, calling them to accounts. And uh, we think of Elijah. Um, Elijah had no righteous leader who could have anointed him as prophet. Um, and as far as I can tell, I, I looked through pretty thoroughly. I tried to find it pretty thoroughly. Elijah was never anointed by a person, a king or a, or a priest or anybody as prophet of Israel. However, Elijah um, anointed Jehu as king and Elisha as his um, as his predecessor. Um, and so uh, it's very interesting. Um, no one could anoint him as as prophet though because of the wickedness Jezebel we think of Jezebel and, and uh, uh, King uh, Isaiah um, so um, very interesting the psalm of thanksgiving here is nearly a word-for-word -word, uh, copy in the first chronicles account so psalm 105 is probably written previously by David um, and it was a familiar psalm for the people and it says basically the same thing um, in verse 15 of Psalm 105. It says, touch not my anointed one, do my prophets no harm. And this is David quoting God or saying, here's the principle that God's given us. And he protected us as God's anointed people with our special anointed ones, our leaders. He protected us from any harm. And a principle was for the surrounding kings or the, or the people of the, of the day in Israel not to harm the prophets. Now, what we're talking about, do not, put your, do not put your hand on the Lord's anointed, is touching, physically harming, bringing harm, trying to kill, etc. So in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 24, David uh, uh, is in the cave with Saul and he has the same opportunity to uh, kill Saul. Um, Saul's relieving himself um, <laughs> with a little bit of a, an audience uh, right there. And David, he didn't realize David was in the cave with him. And, um, and his commanders are saying, hey, there he is. Let's kill him. Let's, let's get this over with and finally move into your rightful leadership. Because by, by that time, uh, David was anointed as king by Samuel. And uh, David says again, who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Nobody. So the point here being uh, David holds on to his, um, let's say his uh, integrity and his obedience of the law of God, even though Saul was a wicked person. Um, and then Psalm 20, verse 6, also is another place where this appears. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Uh, here David, is as king, is anticipating the son of David, who will reign forever, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Um, and then it says in uh, Psalm 28, 8, the Lord is their strength. He is their saving refuge of his anointed. So this is another place where, where this, uh, this idea appears. It's here, it's, I find it noteworthy that David seems uh, to be the only person in scripture that presents this particular principle. He repeats it and he, I, as far as I can find, David in his writings and in his handling and dealing with um, uh, Saul and all this other stuff, he's the only one who repeats this concept. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. It's a principle. It's obviously seen in the Old Testament through Exodus, through uh, who was meant to be uh, anointed and stuff like this. But the leadership of Israel were the anointed ones who led Israel. And David's the only one I can tell who repeats this, uh, this principle. Uh, this is probably likely because of David's encounters with the wicked King Saul. It's very interesting that uh, these things came about uh, with Saul and probably tested David's uh, understanding of these of these principles. So uh, it's probably likely um, because Saul wanted to kill him uh, while David often uh, wanted to sp uh, spared his life. 
Uh, often situations of dramatic life change challenges make certain commands of God more weighty depending on our life situations. For instance, God has blessed us with a child with down, with down syndrome, with disabilities. And so the commands of God to care for the oppressed, to the, to care for the hurting and downtrodden, uh, and, uh, and those who are disabled carry a particular weight for me. Uh, it's just here similar for David, I guess his life was constantly in jeopardy, uh, so long as Saul was alive. But he principled to throw himself on the sovereignty of God instead of taking matters into his own hands. Um, God had chosen Saul as king and David stood principled behind God's choice of Saul, even though he was a wicked king. And in this time, when he was pursuing David, he was consistently in jeopardy, consistently uh, in, in danger. No matter his situation, God had anointed Saul and a command of God was his special protection for first for Israel, those chosen of God, those anointed of God. And secondly, um, and especially the anointed leaders of Israel. So David stuck with this principle, even though it might have cost him uh, quite a bit. Um, he was always in jeopardy, but he stood behind this principle, even though uh, it, it was costly to him. Yeah. Um, flash forward to today's Christian leaders who use this term in relation to their leadership. They're creating a culture of fear where the anointed leaders better not be held under scrutiny. Uh, when people use the phrase, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm, or just say, they just say, usually say, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Um, it's in essence saying you cannot question the teaching, theology, or even the lifestyle of God's anointed. When a teacher or defender or a teacher uses this term in such context, they use it to mean you ought not to challenge their views, teaching, or leadership. In other words, we should blindly follow. David speaks this in relation to Saul and not wanting to kill the Lord's anointed, meaning that he had been physically anointed and appointed as God's chosen king. However, this did not mean that David did not publicly speak out against Saul's wicked actions, but he wouldn't take the next step in harming him or murdering him. Furthermore, David often spoke against Saul and his wickedness, but he resisted killing him. He would rather obey the word of God, do no physical harm to prophets or God's chosen priests, kings, etc. But David clearly rebuked and called to accounts and spoke of Saul's wickedness publicly. So the way this movement uses the term is totally butchered and manipulated to their own ends to silence criticism. This is not what this verse, these verses in the Old Testament mean at all, or this concept in the Old Testament, not even a little bit. So let's look a little bit at what the Old Testament term was and how it was used and how they anointed people. Um, so, and then we'll look at the new covenant. To anoint, uh, mashach is the Hebrew word. It means to rub or to smear oil to anoint, um, to consecrate, uh, and tangentially, interestingly enough, it's translated once as to paint. So to put paint on a, on a canvas, I guess, um, to smear it across a canvas. Uh, Jesus was Yeshua Mashiach. And they add that extra phrase there, which means um, Messiah, or is transliterated as we know the word Messiah, which comes from the word Mashach. Anointing was used in the Old Testament to consecrate, to set apart, to sanctify, uh, to ordain something. Um, and so God explained what kind of oil as well is very interesting. It's very specific regulations as to how you were meant to anoint someone to set them apart. Um, and the concoction was a very interesting uh, a purified olive oil mix with four spices or fragrances. First, pure myrrh, sweet cinnamon, cana balsam. I don't even know what that is, but that's what it was. That's what they use. And cassia. 
So this oil mix must have been quite expensive also. First of all, just myrrh by itself. Um, this mixture was only meant, uh, just like I said before, to be used to anoint sacred things and not poured onto the body of an ordinary person. I find that very interesting. Um, yeah, so in Exodus 30, uh, verse 32 to 33, it's explained. Uh, this is probably likely, uh, they, they only use this type of oil uh, for special things, uh, for these, these things, because um, the use of this oil or the anointing of a, of a prophet, priest, or a king usually preceded the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a special consecrated way, um, like a leader of Israel. We see that actually in the anointing of David. It says, when David was anointed, he was filled with the Spirit from that anointing. In 1 Samuel 16, you can find that. Priests were consecrated. Aaron's garment was anointed um, or smeared with oil. Aaron and his sons were anointed to the perpetual priesthood. This is very interesting. And as it will, uh, we'll see later, um, that we who have put our faith in Christ similarly have been anointed in Christ as priests. Everyone, the priesthood of all believers was a deep theology that Martin Luther rediscovered or re-won for us at the, during the Reformation. We're all priests. Um, and uh, this anointing is likened to the anointing of the priests in the Old Testament. This same perpetual priesthood belongs eternally to Christ alone. Look at Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is full of this. It belongs to Christ alone. And we are co-heirs with Christ in that same perpetual priesthood. Altars in the Old Testament were anointed before sacrifice with oil to set apart those uh, uh, altars as holy to the Lord. The tabernacle was also anointed and everything in it, the furniture, utensils, the tent itself, everything in the tabernacle. Um, and then later on, the temple was anointed and consecrated, set apart for the special service of worship. Um, I guess uh, in the Old Testament there in those times in Israel, oil makers were pretty busy because everything uh, regarding the worship of God was consecrated with oil and this oil concoction. So cinnamon makers were also uh, pretty busy. <laughs> um, he commands God, God commands them to be careful to obey him or they would go into captivity. This is interesting. He says that there would be an olive trees all throughout the land, but if they disobey God, they would not, the olives would fall to the ground and they wouldn't be able to have any oil. That's in Deuteronomy 28, verse 40. Uh, the Old Testament has the concept of men of God standing in the stead of people in behalf of them. That phrase is used 70 times in the Old Testament. These men of God were, were usually chosen and set apart and anointed for such tasks. We in the New Testament um, church, we, have, we don't have that, um, that idea, men of God standing in between men and God anymore. The New Testament does not give us such instructions to commission anyone to the office of prophet, priest, or king. We don't have those offices anymore. Those offices are completely fulfilled in Christ alone. That place has been taken solely by Jesus Christ, the anointed one. So his name Christos means is the Greek form of Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one. He is Jesus Christ anointed, Jesus anointed one. That's uh, not, not Christ is not his last name. <laughs> Christ means the Greek word for anointed. We've just transliterated it and actually probably made it a little more confusing for people. Jesus name, actually, when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus anointed. Jesus, the chosen one, the anointed one of God. He is prophet, priest and king. He's the anointed one of God who is the mediator between God and man. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that. We need no more men of God that stand in between us and God. 
In that sense, the Old Testament pattern of mediator is no longer necessary because Jesus is the man of God. Lest we think that Jesus never claimed to be anointed of God, let's have a look. Luke 4, 18. Jesus was reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He took the part where it says, A spirit of God, a spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent, God sent him to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Um, and to set uh, liberty to those who are oppressed proclaim, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is solely anointed as the chosen one of God. He is the one who is from God, anointed in a special function that no one else has as prophet, priest, and king. Now, uh, Jesus clearly claims himself in this role. The apostles also preached Jesus as the anointed one. The very first sermon Peter preached, he preached it after they had been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. He preached and preached that Jesus was the anointed of God. That's in Acts 4. And then also later on again in Acts 10, uh, Paul proclaims Jesus as the anointed one. Uh, the t this type of defense of leaders um, is really common in a, in a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith movements. Uh, it makes sense, actually, when you really think about it. It makes sense and fits right in line with their beliefs that the office of apostle and prophet is still in existence today. They believe and teach that apostles and prophets hold the official leadership offices as in the office of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. And thus it follows then uh, that they must claim an extra special anointing uh, like those in the anointed in the Old Testament. They believe that the office of prophet um, and apostle are the leading offices of the church. Since their offices and claim such extraordinary authority, then the principle of touching the Lord's anointed makes lots of sense, although it's a step deeper, actually, uh, in its protection. We have seen David in the Old Testament was only talking about doing physical harm to uh, against, a, uh, against Saul. Um, but these guys take it a step deeper to mean uh, not only don't, can't, you can't do any harm to them, but you can't talk critically about them at all as leaders. So this begs the question, who has anointed these men anyways? Uh, we think about uh, what they're, they're claiming extraordinary anointing. Who's anointed them? So if they're anointed like the Old Testament, they're claiming that special protection, don't touch the Lord's anointed, then they've also got to have been anointed by someone, like physically with this special type of oil. Um, and I don't know that uh, anybody can get their hands on kind of balsam or whatever, <laughs> whatever that special spice is. I don't know what it is, but uh, they'd certainly claim that their supernatural power is evidence of the Holy Spirit's anointing on their lives. Uh, to my knowledge, though, none of these prophets or apostles have been smeared or anointed with this uh, purified olive, myrrh, cinnamon, etc. Uh, concoction. Jesus actually, interestingly, rebuts this idea that anointing is linked to miracles when he describes false teachers who claim to do work and miracles in Jesus' name. Jesus said on that day, uh, uh, he will say, the last day, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these prophets and apostles proclaim themselves as anointed, but Jesus himself rejects their own claim to be anointed when they base their anointing on miracles. Because Jesus says that these miracles are not evidence of salvation, much less anointing. So these uh, apostles and prophets would claim that they're anointed because of the miracles that they do. But Jesus rebuts that claim. That's not even a claim to be saved. Because he, these people will say at the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Do wonders in your name? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. 
So those folks who did those miracles weren't even saved, uh, much less anointed, extra special anointed. There are some biblical concepts that are misused and abused more than they are correctly used. And this concept of touch the Lord's anointed is one of them. As the false teachers and prophets become more more prolific, touch not my anointed is thrown around repeatedly as a defensive weapon to silence the voices of truth or any sort of critique. It's also used to justify abusive leadership like I've seen recently. The tragedy is that it sounds scriptural because it is. And so few people think to question it or find out what it really means. What does that term really mean? As a result, the spiritual power of proper discernment is shut down and the guise of being obedient to the word of God. Just be obedient. Obey the word of God. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. You can't critique. So um, the second truth that clearly emerges here is that the word touch means just that. Don't lay hands on. Don't cause harm to someone. This is illustrated through David's refusal to kill to kill Saul. But he didn't hesitate to speak the truth about him and to call him to accounts. Uh, the relevance of this is significant because God is will always honor the truth. Touch not my anointed does not mean that we can't speak the truth. It means to not physically lay hands or harm his anointed. Of course, the ability to speak out does not include speaking falsehood. It means speaking the truth. But that isn't the relevance of today's verse. God has issued a severe warning against physically harming those set apart for it as his people. So this was a, a, also a protection, a principle of God's protection of his anointed ones. Um, when we read the Bible and see how many of God's prophets met violent and gruesome ends, it's tempting to question the veracity of this promise. If God issues a severe warning, why is it that Isaiah, for example, was sawed in half? How'd that get done? <laughs> the simpler answer is that mankind will do as he wills. God has his principles and man will disobey them. This doesn't alter the severity of the warning or its consequences. It's true God did, for example, uh, with Abraham, protect his anointed uh, before things happened to him. But it's also often true that his anointed were tortured and put to death by their enemies and even their own people. These realities don't alter the consequences of touch not my anointed. The warning is that God will deal with himself very severely those who seek to do harm to the anointed ones, meaning his chosen people. All those who harmed or put to death his anointed as prophets will be dealt with. It's a final and non-negotiable outcome. But the question is, how is this applicable to today? Who are God's anointed? I think of the Coptic Christians who were beheaded on the beach uh, a few years ago by Muslim extremists. These were men, these men were anointed. These were faithful men unto death. While this promise is specific in the Old Testament context, the spiritual principle it embodies has never changed. God is very jealous for those he calls his own. Those new Christians in Acts were his anointed, just as the Jews were in the Old Testament. They were all set apart and called by his name and carried the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in a minute here. As such, the warning and its consequences apply as powerfully as they did today as in Abraham and David's day. We can be absolutely certain that those people who have tortured people and martyred them will face consequences for their disobedience, whether in this life or the next. We can be sure God will judge them according to their actions. But it applies to the church today. And here's how it applies. Like I said, I've lost count of how many false prophets and self-proclaimed anointed have lashed out using this verse and shut down the voice of truth or perceived criticism of their ministries and their teaching particularly. Anytime uh, they were confronted with the truth of God's word, out came this accusation. Um, it's an extremely aggressive tactic because it threatens critics with the vengeance of God. It effectively silences anyone who doesn't yet know the word 
or doesn't understand what this principle in the Old Testament really means. The other area this is horribly abused in is validating ungodly leadership, the kind that seeks to control and manipulate believers. In this scenario, the pastor or eldership team reinforces their power by playing the touch not my anointed card. <laughs> they create the perception in believers that leadership is incorruptible because they are, are anointed by God. They're above reproach and cannot be questioned. This is extremely dangerous spiritual practice and goes outside the scope of what this passage means. So Paul talks about this and he encourages actually critique of people who are teaching something false. He says, I appeal in, in Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 17 to 18. He says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Watch out for them and avoid them. Mark and avoid. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Wrong teaching or manipulative and controlling leadership does not constitute harming the Lord's anointed. Uh, critiquing them is what Paul asks us to do, actually. We're commanded to do so, and especially those who claim to sit in the office of apostle or prophet, which doesn't exist anymore. These offices are not part of the New Testament church leadership. Elders, pastors, deacons, as laid out in Titus and Timothy. The gift of prophecy, I would say, does. The gift of apostleship does exist today. It just means sent one, missionary. The gift of prophecy, foretelling the truth, exists, but it's not an office in the church leadership. So, touch not my anointed is for every believer. And here's how it's for every believer. In Christ, every single born-again, spirit-filled believer is anointed of God. Let's take a deeper look at this. It's our promise, no matter what happens to us, we are anointed in the same spirit. God has, God does not promise that people won't be persecuted, tortured, or even martyred, like I said. There are places in the world that this is happening consistently. But we can hold on to the absolute truth that belonging to God is to be among his anointed. We are those he watches over and is jealous for. So jealous for us that those who raise a hand to harm us cannot escape the consequences. We live in the promise of eternal life in and with him. Our physical bodies are temporary, yet those are even precious to God. So precious that touch not my anointed stands as a forever warning against those who raise their hands against us. We are all anointed. How do you ask? Are we anointed? It says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 20 to 22. Let me turn there. I like my old Bible, my paper Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 20 through 22 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ he's talking about. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. <laughs> yeah. This is an awesome, awesome promise. The anointing that born again, repentant believers receive is the seal of the Holy Spirit and a guarantee What's the guarantee? It is the guarantee of salvation. Jesus anointing work in the Holy Spirit is his sealing work in the Holy Spirit. 
praise the Lord. We are anointed and sealed in and through Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed. Those who are born again and have put their faith in Jesus Christ are guaranteed and anointed and sealed unto that end. The answer to this whole thing is actually built around our name. Acts 11.26 says that the first disciples were called Christians at Antioch. Before we were called followers of the way, the word Christian means little Christs or a follower of Christ. Anointing is actually the name. Christ, Christos, is the Greek term for anointed. We are followers of the anointing or the anointed one. We're, he's the capital A anointed. We are the little A anointed. He has anointed us in his spirit and we're followers in that anointing. We're little anointeds <laughs> and we're his followers in that same spirit. There's no higher class of anointed Christian that's more anointed than you or I. It's in the name. We are anointed, little anointeds. We're all anointed and that same Christ who is our head has anointed us all in him. So I want to read this passage in closing. This passage is a little bit confusing, but it's also um, it spells out clear that we're all anointed in Christ. And funny enough, the context in this passage is antichrist or false Christs. So here, let me read this. This is in 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that antichrist or against the anointing, so antichrist is anti-messiahs against the Messiah who would say that Jesus is not the anointed one, or in other words, I'm anointed more than you. I'm, I'm anointed in the same way as Jesus. Those antichrists who go against Christ are coming. Now, so, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So there were some antichrists that were had gone out who had taught that Jesus wasn't Messiah and gone out from their midst. And he says they were not of us or not anointed like we uh, in Christ. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. As a Christian, you, I, we are anointed in the Holy One. He's the anointed one. He's our anointed head. He is our prophet, priest, and king. We are anointed in him, and he is our anointed head, but you are anointed in him. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? If, if someone denies that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the son of God, fully God, fully man, they're not anointed. They're an antichrist. This is the antichrist. He who denies the, denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Don't be deceived. You're anointed. Don't be deceived. You stay in the anointing. Stay in him. Abide in Christ. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it was taught to you, abide in him. You're anointed believer, born again Christian. Those who've put your faith in Christ today, you are anointed 
You are anointed in the anointing of Jesus Christ. He is our anointed head, our prophet, priest, and king. And we are little anointeds. Today, don't let anyone deceive you, as John wrote. Don't let anyone deceive you. You are anointed. There is no extra special anointing. There is no extra special uh, anointed leader. And touch not the Lord's anointed applies to you and to me. God will protect us. And even if all we lose our lives as a result of faith in him, he will protect his anointed. There's no extra special anointing. Touch not the Lord's anointed doesn't apply to questioning false teachers. It's not a thing because we're all anointed. That extra special teacher, that extra special anointing that they claim to have doesn't exist. It's a construct that they've created to keep themselves in power. We are all anointed the same in Jesus Christ. There's no extra special anointing that we have to be afraid of because God has anointed us all in the same way. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is our anointed head, and we are his anointed. Hope this podcast has been encouraging to you today. You are the anointed of God. Christ is our anointed head, and we are anointed in his spirit because we put our faith in him. Thanks for listening to the Churchpreneur's Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-S at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care.